Welcome, welcome. Happy, happy Passover, happy Easter, whichever you might be celebrating. I celebrate, we celebrate Easter in this home. And so it's considered a holy week in our home. We kicked it off with Palm Sunday and then all the significant events each day. I send out a little devotional because most of my children, five out of my, or four out of my five children have flown the Cooper out of the house. So I send a little family text devotional and each day I've been highlighting what happened on this day leading up to Sunday, which will be the day of resurrection, of, of renewal, of redemption, of hope, of revival. I hope you're feeling that at this springtime and during this significant week. Um, I just want to recommend, I went and saw that movie, His Only Son. Have you heard of that? Produced by the uh, makers of The Chosen, producers of The Chosen. And it depicts that four-day journey of Abraham and his son Isaac to Mount Moriah. And it's a beautiful Easter movie because it ties in you know, the Easter message at the end uh, of our father giving his only begotten son. And it was wonderful. So the director comes on at the end of the movie. It should be in your movie theaters. If it's in Washington, DC, I, I, I mean, you know, Christian movies or godly movies stay in Washington, DC about five days. So you gotta, you go, go the day that it opens, but I think it should be out for a while. The producer came on after the end of the movie, his only son I'm talking about, and said this movie cost $750,000 to make. The typical Hollywood movie uh, takes about $50 million to make, and this made $750,000, or, or, or it, it cost $750,000 to make. It's interesting that that movie, Jesus Revival, you might have heard me talking about that one, a, a true-to-life story about a hippie, uh, Hippies for Jesus movement that uh, occurred to kind of counter that drug uh, culture movement uh, movement in the 60s and 70s I came out oh I don't know over a month ago and that has made 50 million dollars it it uh, Angel Studios didn't produce that movie it was Lion Gates but I think that movie cost 15 million to make hey, and they have a, uh, grossed 50 million dollars so far so what I'm saying is there is a, a groundswell movement of people that are desiring that kind of content when they go to the movies and, and not necessarily that uh, anti-God, amoral um, material that seems to be commonplace that, that Hollywood and, and so forth produces. My husband and I are going to New York City tomorrow. We always like to go to Broadway show. And in the last, oh, several years, it's difficult even to find a good show that's not explicit and profane and, and raunchy. I think we're gonna try and go see some like it hot because it's an old fashioned musical. I'll, I'll let you know how that goes, but let's be supporting you know, good godly content and movies in the theater. So I would recommend, it's a beautiful Easter themed because uh, you, you understand the, the feelings of a father's heart knowing he's going to give a, a, a son that he so desperately had prayed for for years he and Sarah and imagine you know our heavenly father and sacrificing his son to come down uh, to this earth as we you know the next few days commemorate, commemorate the, the Gethsemane and the crucifixion and the scourging and the trials and crucifixion and 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 it, and, and it just makes me feel more deeply about the love of the parent sacrificing, you know, um, the sacrifices really that we've all given in the behalf of our children and, and 
and it's <laughs> I could say so much about that and I'm, I'm not because now I'm going off on a tangent but I have my, our 25 year old son who's home for a few days who has been a professional athlete in the NBA and he talked about mom when you drop you and dad dropped me off at Duke I felt like you were having to sacrifice me and I cried and we all cried but because of that experience that he's had as a professional athlete and who's getting ready to kind of ramp out of that world now, he has, it has made him the man that he is. And I, and he says, I just feel like God now is getting started with me. I had to go through this difficult season in my life. He considered the NBA a difficult season because so much of what he endured was contrary to how he had been taught. But you can kind of just see the bigger picture of these biblical concepts of sacrificing and the good that comes through sacrifice and certainly the ultimate sacrifice of his son. So anyways, okay, that is my Easter recommendation. Moving on, I hope by now we are at the last class of our first seminar, God's Hand in the Establishment of America, the Perils of Freedom. We are going to talk about the beautiful miracle of the Constitutional Convention. I hope by now, you have seen God's involvement in the establishment of this land is indisputable. You know, I sometimes think when you can see things from the 30,000 foot level and not down in the weeds, you can see clearly how God's hand has uh, been woven throughout this nation from the beginning. God is into government, into the types of government that his children live under because, and because uh, uh, of this, he influences uh, governments. He understands that the type of government his children live under dictates the kind of freedom that they will have. And freedom is the path to the greatest level of happiness. God knew this. And this is why you will often hear me talk about we cannot have, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've got Jesus on the shoulder of George Washington today. Can you see? I always like to invite one of our founders to our classes. And I thought, we need we need Jesus. We need God on all of our shoulders at this point moving forward. The world's just getting so increasingly contentious and, and wound up. But we cannot have a gospel of Jesus Christ, of, of uh, an ability to worship according to the dictates of our own heart and conscience without a gospel of freedom, a maximum environment of freedom. We know in Galatians, God said, I want you to stand strong, stand fast in liberty. You were made to be free, not to be in bondage. That's Galatians 5.1. And our founders knew and they understood this and they recognized the divine hand of providence in, in settling and building this land. And I think this is one of the reasons our very first amendment uh, in the constitution is our first freedom is this right to be able to worship. Because in a maximum environment of freedom, you have the right to be able to worship according to how your, your heart sees fit. I really believe these founding men and women were the wisest men and women. Never, I never want to forget the women to, to, that God had. That He rose them up at this time and really graduated them from the University of Hard Knocks. I, I think, isn't that how we've all learned our best lessons is just by living being out in the world. And it was the University of Hard Knocks is important. And you will hear me say this over and over that God did not establish this first free people in modern times just to see it collapse into oblivion. 
America will, it can and will be saved. And I believe this is why you hop on every week because you believe that you're taking the time and the energy to learn these principles of freedom and liberty of these stories and miracles of America. And then you want to be about instilling it into the hearts of the people that you love the most, your children, your grandchildren. You want to be a part of this revival, this restoration and repairing and implementing and perpetuating what, what was struck off at the hand of God, our founder said. So let's turn to our first uh, page of the Perils of Freedom, section four of seminar one. I hope everyone has ordered their books already for next week, the Charter of Freedom. We're going to learn about the Constitution and it's going to be great. You're going to love it. But uh, we know that uh, uh, according to last week, the Revolutionary War has ended 1783. And George Washington and Thomas Jefferson knew that the foundation of this new country really had been badly laid upon a weak uh, Articles of Confederation where there was no executive branch and all the three, 13 individual colonies were just acting like their own little separate entities and countries almost. There was no power by the federal government to be able to uh, tax or even to enforce anything that they might put forth. So it was going to be a miracle uh, that um, uh, to gather them together in this convention setting from all uh, appearances, it would seem like these colonies were prepared at this time, the end of the Revolutionary War, just to go their separate ways. And in fact, uh, here's George Washington coming home. Remember, we talked about how he bade farewell to his troops in New York City, uh, and then um, would go on uh, to the temporary capital in Annapolis and then make it home and 1783 for Christmas, I think it was just the day before Christmas to his Mount Vernon, which he loved, he yearned for, for eight years, he was in this frustrating, difficult war, and now he had come home. But in that uh, uh, year, he had heard that some parts of the army was actually planning on seizing power of the government and, and making him king. And he knew that that was not the answer. They had just broken away from it, kingly government. So he wrote at this time period, the 1784, 85, uh, to the, the different states to begin to gather together so that they could uh, you know, begin to work on some economic and political differences that the states were having. And initially the delegates from these states did not come, but in 1785, two years later, uh, he had a, um, a conference over trade and fishing rights uh, with Maryland, the, the state next to Virginia. And then, and then they had an, another conference and the one was in 80, 1784, one was in 1785 where five states showed up and it, it wasn't enough to really, you know, do the work of, of, the, of the country, but it, there was a, a good spirit there. And so he convinced the delegates in 1785 to petition the Congress uh, urging that every state send some delegates to have a conference on the political and economic differences. And so they did, and Congress put forth this declaration to the, the states and they scheduled a convention of May of 1787. Now, you know, it's interesting, you think of George Washington coming home, worn out, his little body broken down. He had rheumatoid arthritis from being out in the elements for eight years during the Revolutionary War. And in the book, I'll show you in a minute, uh, The Real George Washington, he could have just been tired 
and weary and even felt sorry for himself because the states weren't really responding to his uh, pleas to, to get together and have some of these conferences. And he could have just said, I've done my part and lost interest in it, but um, he didn't. You know, it's interesting when he came home, Mount Vernon was in disrepair. It was deeply in debt. He tried to sell off some of um, his acreage uh, to pay off some of his debt. He said he had not felt this poor since he was 15 years old. This is the great General Washington, okay? You would think, oh, the Lord would just pave a, a road of uh, roses for him after all his effort and sacrifice. But no, he was even, he came home to poverty, to, uh, you know, uh, his estate that needed help. He was deeply embarrassed. He owed so much money for medical services. He had to put off a, the sheriff, sheriff three times when he came to collect back taxes and then kind of to put salt on his wounds. He received a letter from his church saying that the payment on his pew was overdue. And so there's a quote by George Washington where he said, even still, I am going to find happiness without wealth or health. It is better to go laughing than crying through the rough journey of life. What an example to us George Washington was. Just think at times when you have felt like I'm doing everything you have asked me to do God or I'm trying and we're fraying here at the edges, my family, my marriage, my community, my country. But he said, I, regardless of wealth or health, it is better to go laughing than crying through the rough journeys of life. And so here he is, you know, trying to unite the, the uh, different states and the constitutional convention has been put forth, it has been scheduled and the delegates are now beginning to arrive. Let's see this uh, uh, next slide there. The Constitutional Convention was the most important convocation at that time of political leaders, probably in the history of the world. There's Independence Hall in Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've been there. It's a beautiful place. There is, um, oh gosh, who is that statue of? I think it's George Washington right in the front. It should be because he was a, the president of the convention. And uh, 73 delegates from the 13 colonies had been uh, invited. Only 55 delegates came because most of the states provided no money for these delegates to get themselves there. In fact, James Madison, who was going to become known as the father of the constitution had to borrow money, who was one of the delegates from Virginia, to attend the Constitutional Convention. Uh, and because of his own personal circumstances at that time, George Washington was almost unable to attend. His brother had just died. His mother and sister were seriously ill and he was in so much pain with his little arthritis, he could not sleep. But nonetheless, he was persuaded to attend and imagine what that convention might've been if George Washington had not have been there. It's kind of reminds me of when Thomas Jefferson asked to be excused from going into Philadelphia when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. And it makes me think how many times we might have missed out on being a real a pivotal influence when, when we have been needed to attend something important when maybe we just don't feel up to it or we're too tired or we're too busy. It, I, I always tell my children it's like going to church. I mean, no one feels like going to church on Sunday when it's early and you just want to sleep in and you're tired from the week. But if you can just get yourself out of bed, get that little dresser, that little outfit on and not put that lipstick on, you uh, 
guarantee will have a spiritual sweet experience and you will be able to be a part of the whole uh, of, of, of worshiping and gathering with like-minded people and you will be blessed because of your contribution and effort. And then these men did things that they did not want to do. So just know that, that when you're feeling like I'd rather not show up for this event, I'd rather not teach my children because they're all scowling at me tonight, let them just watch TV or whatever. Just remember, you know, the difference makers did show up. They did do the hard thing, even when they didn't feel like doing it. And Benjamin Franklin, was there, he was the oldest delegate, 81, 82 years old. And he, his little health was breaking down and it was difficult for him to attend. Oftentimes he was carried into the convention uh, uh, on a sedan chair from local prisoners, uh, from uh, the local prison would carry him sometimes because he had gout, he couldn't walk. These really are, uh, these men right here played such an important part and two of them were not even there in the United States during this time period, but they probably had the greatest contributions to the Constitutional Convention uh, we've got, of course, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin at the top, but John Adams in the corner there, he was serving as a minister to England. He wasn't even in America during the Constitutional Convention, but he wrote a treatise entitled A Defense of the Constitutions of the Governments, Government of the United States, and it was a document that was widely read by the delegates, and we, they referred to it during the a constitutional convention. And then Thomas Jefferson there was also absent. He was an American minister to France, but he would send over a hundred books to James Madison, who he was dear friends with. They were both Virginians, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And he uh, wrote many notes uh, that, that he corresponded with, with um, James Madison during this time period that he considered uh, essential elements of a good constitution. And he, um, through, through these books and through Jefferson's notes, Madison was able uh, to um, be, they considered him the best prepared delegate at the convention. And uh, let's see that next slide. James Madison is, was from Virginia. James Madison, we know, would go on to become the fourth president of the United States, but at the Constitutional Convention time, he was the youngest delegate from Virginia. There were seven delegates from Virginia, and he was kind of a short, slight uh, a man, kind of um, thickly as a young boy. He would uh, attend Princeton University. He was 29 years old at the Constitutional Convention, not married. He had come under the intensive uh, uh, discipline of John Witherspoon, uh, who also was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And John Witherspoon was the president of Princeton, and that's where James Madison attended um, school. And so Madison and Jefferson worked closely together uh, during the years in Virginia. They worked, um, they were both uh, members of the House of Delegate in Virginia, and they helped to push massive legislative reform. And, um, and really, like I said, he was considered the most able political leader uh, at the National um, Constitutional Convention. So let's see that next slide. Put this on your bucket list, Mama. This is Montpelier. It's about, I believe, an hour from Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson. So this is James Madison, a lifelong home, and it's beautiful. He would go on to marry Dolly Madison. You probably know, I've heard of Dolly Madison, uh, 10 years after the Constitutional Convention. So he would get married at 39. She had been a, a widow and she brought a young son to the marriage. 
interesting, James Madison and Dolly did not have any children together. Neither did George Washington and, and, and no living male heirs for Thomas Jefferson either because Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, would die only 10 years into their marriage as well. So it's interesting that a lot of these founding fathers did not have uh, continuing sons to, to carry on their line. But um, she was she was great. She was like Martha Washington and Martha Jefferson. She was a great hostess and charming and popular Dolly and uh, good amongst you know the social circles. When he was the fourth president of the United States during the war of 1812, remember that story of it was Dolly when the White House was burning, went in and saved that great portrait of um, George Washington by um, Stuart Gilbert Stewart, and that original is in the portrait gallery in Washington, D.C., uh, if you ever want to see that. But she, he would die 13 years before her, James Madison, and her son mismanaged her money. And so she ended up in her later years having to sell Montpelier, this beautiful home. And she basically lived in poverty, having to live with other people till the end of her life. She would die at 81 and, you know, it, once again, mamas, it's just a reminder to me that God sometimes will try us clear up to the end. I mean, think of the contribution of, of, you know, James and Dolly and all the sacrifices they had made. And even at the end, you know, that she had to probably, uh, you know, her life didn't quite look like she thought it would in her last years. But um, that's OK, because God is a God of compensation. And in the end. You know, I believe in, in the hereafter, we are blessed in abundance for the choices and the decisions and for our ability to stay the course and endure to the end and not give up and curse God, but just, you know, accept what our life will be and uh, it will be what it will be and continue on moving forward in faith. And that's definitely the sense that I got with James and Dolly Madison. Okay, so here we are. It's May of 1787, and all the delegates are arriving, but most of them are a couple weeks late, except for all of Virginians' delegates. There were seven delegates, George Washington, James Madison, John Blair, George Mason, James McClure, Edmund Randolph, and George Whip. I love George Whip, the great George Whip, home in Colonial Williamsburg, who was the first uh, law legal uh, instructor to in the country and, and taught Thomas Jefferson, you know, the law. So anyways, those were the seven delegates. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. So for those two weeks, my mason jar, for two weeks, they were able to hash out and come up with these 15 <coughs> resolutions that they felt were going to be key to this new system of government that they were uh, going to try and form. So by May of uh, 25th, as the delegates are coming in, their first order of business was to elect the president of the convention, of course, who did they choose, but George Washington, and uh, his stature and his experience, the great General George Washington had so proven himself, they loved him, they respected him, he gave credibility and stability to the convention, and mamas, that is what you do, and grandmothers, you bring credibility and stability to your home and to gatherings. So use that clout that you have and to teach and to gather and to share and to show up. <laughs> so their first order of business was to elect uh, George Washington as the president convention. 
there was a secretary there that was taking notes during this time period, but um, he was not so competent. So James Madison, young James Madison rises up and he was the real secretary and historian of that constitutional convention. And he sat right up front and he took copious notes on everything uh, that was said and done. And he would stay up late writing these. And, and these notes are have been made into a book called uh, the Madison's Notes on the Constitutional Convention. And those original notes are in a vault in the Library of Congress. But they really constitute uh, Madison's notes during the convention, the most authoritative record available of that convention. And that's why we know so much about what took place there. So let's see that next slide. So what they would do is they would have a debate and go back and forth and, and hash out things. And um, George Washington would step down off the podium. Oh, here's Dolly, Mar Mar Dolly Madison. Sorry about that. And here saving her uh, George Washington picture uh, when the White House was burning. There's a beautiful Dolly. Let's see the next slide there. Here's the Virginia Resolve. Sorry, I've been forgetting to cue. Uh, the 15 resolves that they were going to use really is the foundation for the Constitution. Then let's move forward. Are we okay? So here we are. So uh, what they would do is as the as issues would come, George Washington would step down. And, uh, and then they would uh, resolve uh, into a committee on the whole where they could reach temporary decisions and change their mind and kind of go back and forth. And then once they'd reached an agreement on something, then he would turn uh, it back into a convention and they would formally vote on a question. So they basically came to a general consensus of every point in the constitution. Uh, oftentimes people will say it was a conglomeration of um, compromises and that's not the case at all. There was only three compromises in this constitutional convention that lasted four months and it was slavery, it was um, a, a representation according to popular, uh, uh, um, according to the numbers in the state, representation according to population, there you go. And then the third the third compromise was uh, how the federal government was going to regulate interstate commerce. We will talk more about these compromises as we get into the constitution the next four weeks, but it's just important to know that at this time in the nation's country, those Southern states mortgages on their lands were tied to their slaves. So if they stopped slavery right then, it would throw those Southern states into economic peril. Now, everyone wanted it abolished because how could they possibly expect freedom from the tyrannical King George, but still allow a certain segment of citizens to, to live in um, bondage? But they, they, had to, uh, they had to eliminate it slowly. So in the constitution in article one, section four, they were gonna give it 20 years to phase out the importation of slavery. And we'll talk about what happened at that 20 year mark. And in, in, uh, in compromise of that, the, the North was going to allow the South to, um, uh, not, not allow, the North was going to regulate the South's uh, commerce because the South, they were primarily the producers of textiles and cottons and linens and that kind of thing. And if some of the Southern states didn't like some of the Northern states, they would charge you know, more money for cotton and that, and the Northern states didn't feel like that was fair. So this was the compromise that the North 
the government would be able to regulate interstate commerce uh, and, and set consistent uh, wage or uh, prices on how much the southern states could sell their products to the northern states from. And so um, anyways, okay, let's see. So no country, no, we, we have to remember that, that they were doing something that had never been done in the history of the world before. They were structuring a government. Uh, 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 so maximum levels of freedom and the voice of the people were going to really dictate how this operated. And so every point had to be carefully analyzed. Now, when they gathered together, they initially said it was to amend the Articles of Confederation. But once they got there, there was a general feeling that they had to completely restructure what they uh, had had in place up until this point. And so, um, uh, and they knew that whatever they were going to come up with, that Congress was going to have to approve it and that the states were also going to have to approve it. And so I think this is why maybe they felt comfortable in making some radical changes. Now, it was going to take, sorry, that's my doggy. Uh, it was going to take four months for them to hash out and to produce and to write the constitution. Let's see that next slide. And it was a hot summer. If anyone lives on the East Coast and knows in the summertime, oh, it's so humid. I mean, just sweat just drips off of you. And um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, I think I put here the reason why our founding fathers were able to come to a general consensus on most of the points in the Constitution is because they were all reading out of the same books, all right? They were all using the same resources and knowledge that they had that they brought to the convention. They were great studiers of, of scripture, of the Bible, and they were also reading from these ancient thinkers, Montesquieu and Cicero and Blackstone. And you learn about this in the 5,000 year leap. We've got that 12 week um, uh, course that you can go and, and we might actually offer this again in the fall live class, but all these 12 classes are uh, recorded and online if you wanna watch them at your um, leisure. So anyways, this is why they were able to hash it out and come to a general consensus because on so many things they were on the same page because they were all reading from the same playbook so to speak so it would take let's see the next slide four months to reach final agreement on many of the prickly issues of the constitution and it was hot and oftentimes they would close the windows because people were milling they knew this was an exciting time and they would try and stand underneath the windows in here, the arguments going back and forth and no one ever wanted to be accused of being a flip-flopper. They had to have the, the freedom to be able to go back and forth and to have their minds changed. So they would close the windows that hot uh, summer of 1787. Let's see the next picture there. Uh, and it, there you go. The people are milling out uh, in front of Independence Hall during this time period. Let's see what that next slide is. I'm not quite sure. So, um, oh, and often Philadelphia is only about two and a half hours from Washington, D.C., where I live. So whenever we go there, I always take the kids. There's a free tour that you just sign up for. It's about a 15-minute tour that the park rangers, that is George Washington in front of Independence Hall. And we was just last summer, all five of the kids and my brother and sister-in-law and son-in-law and then my sisters also came to town last summer and uh, I just have to take them to these places because there's a spirit uh, about what transpired there. And I want it to get deep into the hearts of the people that I love the most. 
And so uh, we go to Independence Hall quite a bit to an half hour drive from where I live. So um, from May 30th to uh, the mid-June, um, they were going through the different points. And uh, at this point, a delegate from the small uh, state, it's not a small state, but it was one of the smaller states at the time, New Jersey, asked George Washington, can we please take a day off because the smaller states wish to present some ideas and plans because at this point they had just been focusing on those 15 resolves that the Virginians brought to the convention. So let's see that next slide. So the next day, James oh, William, oh my goodness sakes, and this was me a year, um, no, uh, two years ago, or three years ago, in two, uh, 2020, I spoke uh, along with our fearless leader, Kimberly Fletcher, in front of Independence Hall, there's Benjamin Franklin. We were commemorating the 100 year anniversary of women uh, getting the right to vote. And I think I said something like mothers, we might've secured the right 100 years ago, but now we've got to be about saving, you know, this next generation and saving these principles and ideals uh, that we have for our future generations. So that was a fun day. So in, in mid-June, um, the delegate, let's see that next slide, James Wilson of Pennsylvania presents an alternative plan to the Virginia plan. And so let's just see what kind of, how they were able to work this through. Uh, the Virginia plan wanted, uh, when it came to the legislative, uh, the legislature, they wanted two branches and the New Jersey plan wanted just one single body. And I actually, in my notes, have written a little column on the side, what we actually got. We ended up with, with both really. We have one legislative branch, but we have two chambers within that branch, the House and the Senate. And then when it came to the source of the legislative power, the Virginia plan wanted it by the voice of the people and the New Jersey plan wanted it uh, by the consensus of the states. And once again, we got both because we have a house and a Senate, which is the house is, is every two years, the voice of the, the people uh, you're voted, you vote your representatives in. And until 1913, which we'll talk about, the senators were elected by the state legislatures, all right? So the state uh, put in the senators. That's not the case because we had a, a 17th amendment, which has really caused a disruption of the balance of power and some of the problems we have today. And we'll talk about that over the next month when we, we study the constitution a little bit more in depth. Uh, when it came to the executive a branch, uh, the Virginia plan wanted just you know one executive, one person uh, to lead the country. The New Jersey plan wanted, I think they wanted three people, three presidents, so to speak. And we, we, we know that we just have one president so that we followed the Virginia plan. As far as le legislative action, um, the Virginia plan said by the majority of the people should uh, be able to dictate uh, you know, who was put into office and so forth. And the New Jersey plan wanted a small minority. We know that things are done by a majority now. So that one. And then the extent of the legislative power, the Virginia uh, plan wanted uh, the legislative body to be able to handle all national concerns. And it's certainly, we know that they are to provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare kind of thing from our preamble. And the New Jersey plan wanted the legislative body to only have uh, jurisdiction over limited subjects. And we have a little bit of both because we know that the legislative power does handle national issues, our legislative branch, 
but it, they were only contained to 20 enumerated powers in the constitution. And we'll talk about what those 20 enumerated powers and how the legislative branch today really have abdicated a lot of the things that they were supposed to do to the executive branch. And they wanted to know if there was a problem with the uh, president, how could he be removed? The Virginia plan wanted um, the president to be impeached and the Jersey plan wanted it to be uh, an, by application of the majority of the states. And we do know that it is by impeachment that the president is removed today. The House of Representatives impeaches the president, which we have seen that with President Clinton and President Trump. And then it is up to the vote of the Senate if he's actually removed. And both Clinton and Trump were not removed because there were not votes in the Senate. So it's interesting during this time when they were trying to hash out all these points that Alexander Hamilton, the great Alexander Hamilton, let's see that next slide. He rose up and he said, hey, I have a completely a different entire plan. And he put forth his ideas that were very similar to uh, the British government, this government that they had just broken away from. And so because he was a well-respected man, had been a close aide to uh, General Washington during the Revolutionary War, um, he, he was respected and they were allowed him to speak and put forth his ideas. And it said, it was said in the notes that it was applauded by all, but supported by none. In fact, it wasn't even discussed, let alone invited, uh, voted upon. You know, Alexander Hamilton is a really interesting uh, uh, man of history. Of course, maybe many of you know him because of um, Hamilton, the, the musical, which is, I think, pretty darn close to history. When I saw it, I was skeptical thinking, you know, imagine Broadway and Hollywood taking the liberties, that it, the, the lies that they perpetuated about our founding fathers. But I think Hamilton is pretty true to history. So we know that Hamilton was so close uh, uh, and confidant to George Washington and would serve as his secretary of treasury during um, George Washington's administ administration. But little Hamilton, uh, started out life difficult. He was an illegitimate child born in the West Indies and he would come to America during his teens. Uh, he was sponsored by a wealthy merchant. And there he went to King's College, which is known as Columbia University today. And he practiced law and he started the Bank of New York and he was a signer of the constitution. And Alexander Hamilton would go on to write uh, over 50 of the 85 Federalist Papers. Um, and those Federalist Papers were just articles that were um, published in the magazines and newspapers during that time, uh, convincing um, the people in the states why they needed to ratify and adopt the Constitution and, and really um, helping people to understand the, the original intent of the founders during this constitutional convention. So he's played such an important role in our history. Unfortunately, Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr at age 49. Imagine if he had lived till his 80s and um, like so many of our founders did, what might have come from him. But Aaron Burr was the vice president to Thomas Jefferson, okay? In those days, when you ran for president, the loser would become the vice president, which didn't make for very friendly relations between the president and vice president. So even though Aaron Burr would become uh, Jefferson's vice president, they were at odds with each other. 
Aaron Burr would try to run for governor of New York and Hamilton did not support him. So there was bad blood between them and they got into some sort of heated argument. Burr challenged him to a duel and Hamilton agreed. What was he thinking of? And he was killed in this duel down uh, in lower Manhattan. And Alexander Hamilton is actually buried at Trinity Church in New York City in that Wall Street area, just like a few blocks from the St. Paul's Church that we talked about. And you can see this big tombstone of Alexander Hamilton. So put that on your bucket list when you go to New York City, go to Trinity Church. And out in the graveyard is Alexander Hamilton's um, tombstone. But he, um, let's see that next slide. He built a beautiful home called the Grange House, and it is in New York City. It's on 141st Street. You can just take the red line right up and get off a few blocks before it and walk over. Now, back in the day when he built this house, he built it two years before he would die. He and his wife, Elizabeth, had eight children, and, and they had a, a, a beautiful um, love affair. And as so he probably was, a, a, a you know, a a place to retreat back in those days. It was kind of considered the suburbs out in the country of New York. But today, I mean, you're right in the right in the heart of Harlem, I believe, this home, 141st Street. But you can go there. There's a little a visitor center and you take tours of Alexander Hamilton's house in New York City. So put that on your bucket list. It's it's um, it's a great little uh, couple hour uh, adventure to have in the city. And so, you know, uh, by the um, kind of end of June of 1787, James Madison stood up and uh, gave a speech, a stirring speech, because <laughs> he realized, you know, that they were coming loggerheads here. And he said, look, we have to come up with a convention for the ages that will stand the test of time and the growth that was going to occur. There was about three million people the population in the states at that time. Remember, John Adams said this constitution was to be written for 300 million, and we have 320 million people today. So they were prophetic and trying to, to think big as they were writing this constitution. And so after Madison gave his little speech, the New Jersey plan was voted down. Hamilton's uh, feelings were, ego was kind of offended. So he took his ball and he went home <laughs> for a time, but he would come back ultimately uh, towards this end of June period, the convention um, was uh, really, um, it, was a, it was a dark period, a, a time of crisis, really. And the elderly Benjamin Franklin asked for permission to stand up. Because now they had been at it about a month. And some say it was his speech, Benjamin Franklin's speech, that saved the Constitution because delegates were starting to get offended and, and going home. Let's see that next slide. He said, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of man, men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable. Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? And he said that he believed that um, with the aid of God, that if, if they didn't have God, they could not possibly succeed in this political building, no better than the builders of Babel. And so what he did is he petitioned the delegates to pray every morning and seek the assistance of the heaven. And his words had a sobering effect on the delegates. Let's see that next slide. 
you've heard me, you know, we use the term forefathers and these, they're literally for four men of this nation that they, and this is why they call it our forefathers. Uh, George Washington, it was the father of, of their country. And James Madison there is the father of the constitution. And then on the end there is Samuel Adams, who was the father of the American revolution. And then uh, little Benjamin Franklin, did you know, was known as the father of morality. He was known as the golden patriot. Now that might shock you because modern historians have done such a good job at pointing him out as a womanizer or as a pervert with all his affairs and so forth and you know, with women in France. More money has been spent on decimating Benjamin Franklin and maligning his character. And isn't that interesting if you can if you can convince people that they were just men, they were immoral, degenerate, hypocrites, perverts, racists, so forth, we won't, we won't study them. We won't want to hold them up and revere him. Benjamin Franklin wrote a book, let's see that next um, slide, called The Book, book of Virtues, 13 Moral Virtues, that he every night had a checklist that he would check off. And they're like frugality and moderation and sincerity and justice and humility. There's a wonderful book. You've heard me refer to uh, the real George Washington, the real Thomas Jefferson. So it's, it's a, a three series. And then this real Benjamin Franklin that tells about his life and sets the record straight on these crazy rumors that have circulated for as long as I've lived that he was a womanizer. Uh, and, and he really uh, is to be admired as a young boy, he ran away from home and he really in his 20s would become one of the most influential publishers in all of America. He experimented with electricity and, and bifocals and he had many inventions. And for 25 years, he went back and forth. He was the diplomat to England and France. And he actually was the negotiator of the peace treaty that would end the revolutionary war between uh, England and he, the role that he took, because he was in his 80s and he was old and his health was bad at the Constitutional Convention, but he, even though he was there at great physical uh, discomfort, his presence, like George Washington, enabled him to wield influence. And uh, even though he, he wasn't much of a public orator, um, one of the delegates, uh, what's his name, William Pierce from Georgia, said when he told a story, he was so, in, he was more engaging than anyone he had ever heard, and he possessed the activity uh, uh, equal to, of, of his mind, of a young person. And George Washington, or Benjamin Franklin, would go on to write how pleased he was at the men in this de delegation, in this convention, that they were men of high character and prudence and ability. And he said it was the most respectable assembly that he had ever participated in. Now, let me tell you what Benjamin Franklin would, would do because he was still involved in the affairs of the state of Pennsylvania where he lived. So in the morning, he would go to, into work at the Pennsylvania State House and do the affairs of the state. And then he would go on to the Constitutional Convention at least five hours a day and be a part of that great work. A few years ago, let's see the next slide. My husband was a state senator for uh, in the state of Utah. Let's see that next slide. And there is the, the governor at the time, Gary Herbert. 
And uh, this was about eight years ago, we were at the governor's mansion for some function and the governor is speaking. And he said how he was a descendant of Benjamin Franklin. And this is what he actually said to this group of people that were in the governor's mansion. He said, I know my descendant wasn't a perfect man and he was a womanizer and he kind of went on, but then he went on to extol him and say how he was still proud to be associated and related to Benjamin Franklin. So I just could not contain myself. After uh, he was finished, I went right up to the governor and I said, uh, Governor Herbert, I said, did you know that your ancestor was known as the father of morality? He was known as the golden patriot. I said, I have a book I want to share with you called The Real Benjamin Franklin that is gonna refute a lot of the lies that had been told about him. And he, he was like, oh, okay. So the very next day I got that book. I have a couple of extra books. All the books I refer to you, I have two or three extras because I give them away when <laughs> I'm inspired. So I had that book ready. I inscribed, you know, my little personal witness in the real Benjamin Franklin. And I marched up to his office in the state capitol because I would go up with my husband every day when uh, the legislature was in session. And I went in, I gave it to a secretary and just honestly, like uh, 10 days later, I got this letter from the governor uh, saying how he appreciated the book and, and look and handwritten, it's always nice to know a little bit more about my cousin, thanks again. And so that taught me that as you're learning these stories of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, and you hear people say things that are not true, you got to stand up and you've got to give them the other side of the story and maybe even say, I've got a book I want you to read. And, uh, and so that's a fun little story I, I had about uh, defending the great George Washington. Okay, so uh, things were grim and poor little George Wa uh, Washington at this time uh, in, in July, I mean, uh, one week alone, they had 60 votes on how they were going to elect the president. And they were discouraged and it was hard. And George Washington even would go on to write, I, I feel like I need to repent about having any agency in this business. He was getting weary. It was July, it was hot. He was tired of the bickering back and forth. And I just want you to know, mothers, you are going to feel this way when you're trying to train up and teach your children and they're not wanting you know, to do family devotional or they're giving you a hard time about something or you're wanting to you know, go out to the school board or you're having conversations in the neighborhood or you're up at the state legislature. But we have to just, even George Washington who felt weary, he stayed the course. And even though some people say George Washington at this period in his life looked as grim as he did during Valley Forge, which was the darkest period of the Revolutionary War. He stayed the course and there was a breakthrough uh, in mid-July uh, about representation. Roger Sherman from Connecticut came up with an idea that each state, even the small states and the big states should have equal representation in the Senate. So everyone would have two senators. And then in the House of Representatives, uh, it would be according to population. And that the key provision that I think made both sides happy was that each house uh, and Senate could have the veto power over each other. And uh, this met with each other's approval, which, which tells me that the group as a whole is smarter than the smartest person in the group and that they worked through issues, even when it looked bleak and it was contentious and they hashed it out and they went back and forth coming to general consensus and they worked it out.
beautifully. And then the end of July, they put it, the constitution forth to a committee on detail. Let's see the next slide. Governor Morris, who was a delegate from Pennsylvania. He had a, he has a peg leg. He was, um, he kind of tightened up the language in the constitution and just made it sing. He was known as the penman of the constitution and he actually would write the uh, preamble to the constitution as well. And then let's, the next slide. Uh, really the founders, there you go, had, had found the balance center, uh, people's law, based on really what they'd seen with Moses, where only limited powers were delegated at the top to the federal government. And mostly the problems were solved at the local level where the problems were closest to the people. And the power base was going to be, uh, you know, uh, strong local self-government with a minimum um, uh, of, of power only limited and carefully defined. Um, let's see the next slide. Do I have that? Yeah, this is a principle of liberty. They wanted strong local self-government. Uh, they knew that was the keystone to preserving what they had put forth with only limited and carefully defined powers to be delegated at the top. And they pulled that power structure right out of Moses in Genesis and Deuteronomy where Moses made captains of tens and captains of the hundred and thousands and, uh, you know, um, and then ultimately just big problems to be solved at the top. Nowadays, let's go back to that last slide. Nowadays, it, it would seem like this pyramid of power has been flipped upside down. <laughs> and just imagine the, the, the triangle flipped upside down with the federal government, most of the power retained there. And that, uh, it feels like that's what we have. And because of some changes that occurred to the constitution in the 1900s, it's, that's what it feels like today. But the, the founders put in, you know, the separation of, of powers, a, a vertical separation from the federal government and the states, so the states could protect the people from an over-aggressive government. But they also, the founders provided a horizontal separation of power amongst the three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. And so it, it, they created, let's see that next slide, uh, to, to have that balance of power. Let's see that, go on to the next slide kind of like this three-headed eagle with a common neck so that each department would be independent, but they, that, but they couldn't function with the support of each other. So there we have the legislative in the middle and the executive and the judicial with um, the two wings of conservatism. So one of the wings is known as the wing of compassion that they, they seek to fulfill the needs of the people. You know, people come to them with, with plans and they need to solve the problems quickly. So that's the House of Representatives. And then the other, we, uh, oh, and so you see the olive branch there, meaning let's come to some, let's solve problems. Let's, let's be peaceful and solve problems. And then the, the, the wing of resources uh, is, is the Senate. And they were to kind of cool off all the plans and all the spending of the monies and ask the question, look, wait a minute, can we afford this program? And does it uh, violate the rights of the people? And so senators are in longer because kind of like let's cooler heads prevail. And so when either of these wings fail to perform its job, then the American Eagle begins to drift either towards tyranny or anarchy. And we will talk about this over the course of the next four weeks. But in 1913, uh, we came, um, there was the 17th amendment that took the power from the Senate 
away from the states and, and gave it to the people to elect. And so what happened is the senators began to act more like the representatives and just wanting to solve all the problems because it was the people that was going to elect them and no one was standing on that wall protecting the states. And so, you know, when, when both wings start leaning and acting more like, you know, we just got to solve problems and spend money, then you see we start to lean towards tyranny. And, and this is, uh, and, and more power is in that executive branch. And so we will talk about how the disruption of power has occurred, but really for the first hundred years under the constitution, both of these wings were uh, fulfilling their assigned functions. And that little eagle was able to fly straighter and higher than any civilization ever known or seen in the history of the world. And this is how the founders had envisioned it. And this is what transpired. And this is why within the first hundred years, of our constitution, even though we had only 6% of the world's population and 7% of the land's mass, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth. Okay, let's see the next slide. We're coming on to the end here. So on Monday, September 17, 1787, the constitution, they gathered together, 55 of the delegates met and 39 signed. Some of the delegates had gone home. Some of the delegates didn't sign because they wanted a, a bill of rights, uh, but people didn't, a lot of the delegates didn't want a bill of rights because they were afraid if we forgot to include all the rights that we have that if they weren't mentioned, they would then therefore assume to be forfeited and the government would have that right. And so ultimately a few years later, a bill of rights, those 10 bill, 10 amendments would be put forth and we'll study that the next few weeks. But they had enough of a, a, a delegates from each state to be able to sign uh, the constitution. And Madison was watching closely as each delegate would come up and sign the constitution. And he wrote in his notes that when the, um, when the old man, when Benjamin Franklin signed, the old man wept. What a scene that must have been. And um, as he was signing, Benjamin Franklin uh, referred to a carving on the chair there to see that chair that George Washington sat in during the convention. He said, I've often in the course of this four month session wondered with the, uh, there was a son on the back of that little chair, whether um, behind the president, whether that was going to be a rising sun or a setting sun, were they really going to pull off this task? And Benjamin Franklin would say, I, I am now with great happiness Let's know that it is a rising, not a setting sun. Let's see that next slide there. And so that famous convention came to a close. This was us last year in the Constitutional Convention uh, Hall at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. You can actually go in the very room and there's the chair in the back and uh, there's all the kids. Not often I get all the kids there. Let's see the next uh, slide. Um, and there, there it is, there, they would sit at these little tables. I think that's the American Revolutionary Museum in Philadelphia. They have a replica of the chair. My husband is sitting in it, pretending to be George Washington, I guess. So, so for about a year and a half, these Federalist Papers, these articles were produced in all the colonies explaining what the, the new government constitution uh, was going to look like. And they were trying to win the hearts. So Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay would write these 85 Federalist papers under pseudonames. <laughs> they were still, you know, this is still a tenuous time. 
and the constitution would be ratified in 1788, making it the law of the land. And it was officially adopted, the constitution, in 1789. So it was signed in September of 1787, ratified in June of 1788, making it the law of the land, and then adopted by all the states. All the states signed off on it in 1789. Delaware was the first state to ratify the new constitution and Rhode Island was known as Rhode Island because they didn't even send delegates to the constitution for a time. It was the last one to ratify the constitution. And then that same year in 1789, when it was adopted the constitution, that's when George Washington was sworn in at Federal Hall in uh, uh, New York City and he became the president of the United States. So I hope that you have enjoyed this first seminar. We come to the end of this first seminar. Please go over and read each section because that's really how you plant it in your heart and mind. And then pull uh, you know, this seminar on your lap and teach it to your children in the morning or at night. I hope you can see that the events and the people that God used to establish this nation that Look, he didn't go through all this effort to establish this first free people in modern times to see it collapse. And I know <laughs> it is discouraging right now in our country is so divided. Woo, Washington, D.C. is just in a tailspin right now with the indictment of President Trump and ooh, the transgender movement that is really being pushed strongly out here. And I know all throughout the country. And, and so it can be discouraging. But if you go back to your roots, just like beautiful Lindsay said, God's handprints are all over our early history. And it helps us rise up and know that God is going to prevail and that we will prevail as long as we're on his side. But it's going to take work. But we know God rewards effort. I mean, look how he guided and inspired little Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the pilgrims and Samuel Adams and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and James Madison and Benjamin Franklin, who we talked about today. Now you need to, 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 to know, and what we showed, he did not take it easy on any of them. Remember George Washington said, I've never felt more poor in my life after he given eight years of his life to his country. And so, you know, we are going to feel weary and we're going to feel like it's all for naught. And we might even feel like, what's the point, <laughs> you know? But um, they gave their all for this cause. And that is when God was able to step in and fill in the gaps and provide the miracles that we've studied over the course of the last few weeks. So I hope you all have your manual number two. If you haven't, you can buy these manuals, I think for $49, get all four of them and have them ready for next week's class. In four weeks time, after we go through seminar number two, the Charter of Freedom, which is the Constitution, you will know more about the Constitution than I dare say 99% of America. So I promise I will make the Constitution come to life as much as I can. And it's, it's a beautiful inspired document. And I know you will feel the spirit of this inspired document that I almost consider akin to scripture, really. And I will try and show you how applicable it, it is to you as a mother and a grandmother that it was written to protect families because our founders knew that you have strong families, you will have a strong nation. And so I hope as the winter passes, I know that Z lives in Colorado and she just got up another foot of snow, but in Washington, DC, it's eight, it's gonna be 85 degrees today. The, the cherry blossoms are still hanging on to the trees, but 
sometimes in our life, it feels like the long winters of our life pass and the signs of spring surface. And, and um, I hope that's how you're feeling, especially, you know, at this significant religious spiritual time, particularly for me, Easter, when I think of, of you know, uh, Jesus Christ rising with hope and healing in his wings that he lives, he is going to prevail. And so are we. And so this is why we just have to remind ourselves we have every reason in our hearts to feel confident and optimistic and hopeful and to know that we need to be his voice and helping other people around us stay anchored in hope when they're, you know, being tossed to and fro and despondent and angry and hope, depressed and anxious that as we learn these things, it will help us to stay anchored in the truth of, of how God works, how he has always worked, and we will help to shore up and anchor those around us. So thank you so much. Have a beautiful uh, Easter this weekend, and we'll turn it over to Z.